Matthew chapter 15. To find and to test our Savior in His growing popularity. And they found when they arrived there that the disciples and Christ Himself were not obeying the traditions that were laid down by the elders and washing their hands religiously and ritualistically before every meal. And Christ started last week to start to rebuke them in their false notions of their ethic before God. And that's what consumes our passage today. What, what is righteousness before God? What really defiles us? Last week we saw the Pharisees and the scribes, they had rejected the law of God for the sake of their tradition. And I would ask you to stand with me as we read verses 10-20 through 20 today as Christ returns to the original problem of them washing their hands. He calls the people to Himself. And this is what He says. The Word of God for us today. Verse 10, And He called the people to Him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to Him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, they will both fall into a pit. But Peter said to Him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Pray with me today. Oh, Father, I come before You in great weakness and I pray today that You would strengthen me by Your Spirit to be able to preach Your Word in a way that's helpful for Your people. Lord, we love You. We pray that You would teach us the true nature of our depravity and that all sin that manifests itself in this world, it comes from the human heart naturally. Lord, I pray that You would help us to see the seriousness of this and that we would live appropriately because of it. And most of all, God, I pray that You would help us to see the Gospel of Jesus Christ to people as wicked and depraved as we are to our very core. Please, God, help us. Be with us today. Grant us strength. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that's very clear when you read through the Old Testament is that the people that were saved by God from the land of Egypt, they were constantly in danger in relying on the external rituals of the Old Covenant as an end-all and be-all means of their righteousness before God. That's what we read in Psalm 50. God has to correct and rebuke the people of Israel saying, it's not because of your sacrifices that I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. But it's because you've forgotten my law. You've forsaken it. And you've relied on these external rituals over and above everything that is true and right. But I think the 
the saddest thing in my own personal life and experience is how much we can resemble in our own Christian lives the attitude of the people of Israel. We can so easily fall into external duties of our private devotion time or coming to church and taking the sacrament, reading the Bible and all these different things that we become mere externalists just like the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees have a twofold problem that we've examined last week and this week. First, last week we saw that they had forsaken the commandments of God, how they ought to live their life in preference for the traditions and the commandments of men. And today, we see that they had replaced what truly defiles a person with external things rather than seeing the true depravity, true defilement before God. What separates us from God and man is what comes from our own heart. In this text, Jesus corrects the externalism of the Pharisees by teaching that all evil is from the heart. And the purpose that I would propose that we listen to today is that we would face, come face to face with the seriousness of this doctrine, that is depravity coming from the heart. That we'd come face to face with that, but also the purpose of this text that we come face to face with the depravity of the human heart and that we would run to Christ through it. And so, two points that I want us to consider today is first, I want us to consider the seriousness of this doctrine, and secondly, consider the depth of our human depravity. So, first consider the seriousness of this doctrine. This is verses 10 through 16. Now, what I'm trying to get at here is that the surrounding context to the core teaching of verses 17 through 19, it highlights, it magnifies, it undergirds everything by pointing to the seriousness with, with which Jesus Christ took this doctrine. And I would tell you today, first, when we talk about the seriousness that we should take this doctrine, we should first see that the context demands that we take this seriously. Now, in the surrounding context, I want us to notice that everything that Jesus is talking about and everything that Matthew records, at least from verses 1 through 28, have to do with purity of the heart. Whether ethically or ritualistically or whatever it might be, Jesus is dealing with purity and true righteousness before God. We saw last week in verses 1-9 through that traditions is what Jesus Christ primarily is seeking to, to correct. As the Pharisees were so pointed in their application and in their, um, their observance of the traditions of the elders, they had actually totally forsaken the law of God and were seeking to not just forsake God's law, but to bind other men's consciences towards these traditions. And Jesus Christ rebukes them because they did not have a proper ethic of how we know what is right and wrong. It's not what I feel. It's not what I think. It's not what the world or tradition or culture tells me. It's what the Word of God and the Word of God alone says is right and wrong. But if we look forward to what we're going to see in a couple of weeks by God's grace, 
In verses 21 through 28, we're still dealing with the issue of purity and what is clean before God as we consider this Canaanite woman that comes to Christ. And we consider there the purity of the Gentile heart that truly has faith in Christ. Does being a Gentile separate you from God's grace even if you have faith? And today, in verses 10 through 20, we see the condition of the human heart being taught by Christ. Whether external things truly make us defiled before God, or whether it is something much deeper. Now, the immediate context of what we see is the core teaching of what we have from Christ. Notice with me that Christ in the plainest of language says in verses 11, verse 17, verse 18, verse 19, and verse 20, something that cannot be debated with very clear language, that it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of his mouth that defiles him. In verse 17, Jesus says much the same thing in greater language. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Mark 7 adds to this in his pericope of this. And he says, because it doesn't go into the heart. It merely goes into the stomach. It is expelled into the latrine. It does not enter the heart. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Jesus says this with such clarity of language And His immediate core teaching is that the source of all evil is from the human heart. Our individual hearts. Now, as we might consider even in this building, that I can go to various faucets or the drinking fountain in the hallway and get water or the tap outside, that these are various sources that water might come from, but ultimately, in Arlington at least, the source of that water comes from the Arlington Water Tower And so, Jesus is saying that there might be many expressions of evil that come from the human heart, whether it be through my wicked hands doing wicked things, my feet going wicked places, my tongue slandering my neighbor, or even the thoughts of a rotten and deceived and depraved mind. But all of that proceeds from the heart. That is, from the very core of who I am as a person, it is so rotten that death and evil proceeds from it. But why I want to highlight this core teaching of Christ that we see in particular in verses 17 through 19 is when I was trying to prepare this sermon, the Holy Spirit was not not content to just give us the core teaching of Christ here in verses 17 through 19, but He surrounds this passage with a bunch of background context, right? Right? But notice with me, not only do we see the plain teaching of Christ, but we see Christ calling the people to Him, commanding them to hear and understand. We see the disciples' confusion about why He offended the Pharisees. We see Peter's confusion that this is a parable. And so the question that I had in my mind in preparing this text is why did the Holy Spirit see it necessary to include all of this background information in our passage? And I would tell you today, if we look at this, I believe that we will find that all of these background details highlight the serious nature of this doctrine and why we ought to pay especially close attention to it. So, this 
important information in verses 10 through 16 is what we're looking at and why it demands that we take it seriously. Notice first, Jesus' strong words to the people demands that we take the doctrine of human depravity with the utmost seriousness in verses 10 through 14. Now, these are things that we typically read past. But I want us to think in verse 10 what Jesus does here. The Pharisees and Christ have just had a collision in doctrine. And Jesus takes the time, notice, to call the people to Himself. That is, He is not content to just stand in the field and start preaching. He wants to make an official start of His teaching by calling them to Himself. They need to pay attention to what He says. But on top of that, He commands them, doesn't He? He says, hear and understand what I have to say. Now, why this is shocking is because this is contrary to how Jesus has been dealing with the general crowds of people prior to this point. Turn with me to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 13, we see in this chapter that Jesus had taken a different direction in teaching the people and He began to teach them in parables. And you might recall that one of the purpose of the parables is that the crowds that did not believe in Christ would not understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Notice in verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, neither do they understand. That Christ, in His parables, one of the chief reasons He was speaking that way is so that the people would have difficulty hearing and understanding. But, Christ calling the people to Himself and commanding them to hear and understand is so serious that it highlights the seriousness of our doctrine. That is to say, so serious is the doctrine of human depravity that Jesus pauses His his speaking in parables to highlight the seriousness of this doctrine. He wants all people to understand clearly the seriousness of the Pharisees' error. But not only that, Jesus is willing to offend the Pharisees by His bold and strong words. Did you notice that? In verse 12, the disciples come to Him and say, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Now, the disciples seem concerned about this probably because these were eminent men coming up from Jerusalem to hear Christ, to hear His teaching, and the disciples are concerned that they have offended these men. But Jesus is not concerned about this offense. In fact, Jesus speaks these bold words and tells the disciples not to be concerned about it. Now again, when we think in context to our Savior's ministry up to this point, not only was He in the habit of speaking to the crowds in parables, but He was also in the habit of not being quarrelsome. Right? Christ is the preeminent manifestation of what a preacher and any godly man should be in not engaging in quarrelsome controversies, but rather being gentle and mild. We see this in chapter 12 of Matthew. Chapter 12 of Matthew, the controversy over the Sabbath is really ramping up 
in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we'll notice in verse 15 that Jesus, aware of this, aware that the Pharisees were conspiring to come and destroy Him, aware of this, He withdrew from there. Now, notice with me, what's quoted in the prophet Isaiah in verse 19 is a, is a commentary on Christ's withdrawal. That He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear His voice in the streets. That Jesus Christ was not known for having a quarrelsome ministry. Now true, when people confronted Christ and tried to trap Him, He was bold as a lion, but He was not known to be quarrelsome or to cause unnecessary offense. But in this occasion, the error was so serious by the Pharisees that He is willing to offend. And again, I'm proposing that this shows the seriousness of the doctrine that Christ is teaching. Thirdly here, the doctrine of the Pharisees is such an egregious error that it warrants disassociation and disfellowship with the people of God. Notice that. In verse 13, after the disciples say that they were offended, notice the strong words of Christ here. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, they will both fall into a pit. Now this is, I think, extremely shocking from the lips of our Savior. The error of the Pharisees is so serious that He doesn't call them. He calls them, don't be concerned, overly concerned about being united with these men. Don't be overly concerned about trying to appease them and not offend them. Actually, the shocking command that we have here is leave them alone. And maybe even more shocking, that these are plants not planted by God. Now, that language might seem strange to us. What does it mean when Christ says of these men that every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up? Well, if we think about Old Testament and New Testament categories, it's very often that Jesus Christ and the Spirit represents God's people as a plant planted by God. Notice with me in Isaiah chapter 60. If you'll turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 60. And again, as you're turning there, what we're trying to see is all of this background context is supposed to highlight the seriousness of Christ's main teaching here. He tells the Pharisees, He tells the people rather, that the Pharisees are not a plant that's been planted by my Heavenly Father. What does that mean? Notice, Isaiah 60 and verse 21. We have the people of God as a plant being portrayed here. Verse 21. Your people shall all be righteous... They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. And then if you'll just scan down to chapter 61 of Isaiah, in verse 3, notice, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, in verse 2, to grant, in verse 3, those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Notice, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. 
And we might recall from John 15.5 that we even read this morning that Jesus says of the new covenant, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from Me, you can do nothing. So when Jesus says to His disciples, let them alone, for every plant that My Father has not planted will be uprooted, Jesus is saying nothing less than holding to this doctrine that defilement comes from without rather than within. That this separates somebody from the covenant community of God's people. This is not godly doctrine. It's not Christian teaching. And it does not comport with anything that true godliness teaches. Jesus' language is absolutely shocking. And again, Jesus' strong words demand that we take this doctrine with the utmost seriousness. But, something else that we should notice. Peter's confusion, I think, demands that we take this doctrine with seriousness. We see that Peter says, explain the parable to us. Explain the parable to us. And in this, Peter is calling on Christ to do what he has done so often before in Matthew chapter 13, that he would give an interpretation of the parables that he gave. He said many hard sayings that were hard to understand. So interpret the parable for us. But the question that we should ask of this text is, did Jesus speak a parable here? Some of the commentators that I read this week just assume that Peter's right in saying that this is a parable, although the commentators would say it doesn't fit anything of what we know a parable is. But I would propose to you today that this is not a parable spoken by Christ. It doesn't have the character of, of any parable. and It doesn't have a story, a narrative. It doesn't have strong symbolic imagery that we're supposed to connect together. And it does not follow the purpose that we've already seen of the crowds being meant not to understand Christ's doctrine. We know that the Pharisees at least were able to very clearly grasp the meaning of Christ so much so that they could be offended by it. I would say for all these reasons, this cannot be a parable. So what do we make of Peter's question? I think that external religion thinking that we're defiled by things outside of us and not things within us, is so intrinsic to the way we naturally think as human beings that Peter was thinking, okay, this has to be a parable of some kind. This has to be a parable. It must be a riddle. Jesus can't be speaking clearly because it goes so against what we naturally think as human beings. And brothers and sisters, I know if we think it can be the same way with us, we buy the, When we buy the lie that we are contaminated and defiled by external things, it can be a very hard thing to shake. And some of you that have come out of fundamentalist circles, you'd think that just hearing secular music or watching secular TV, that somehow this has a defiling influence on the body and on the soul. And it's hard to shake these things. Now, these things can tempt the human heart That is certainly true, but none of these things defile us in and of their very being. And because this tendency is in the human heart, we must pay close attention to Christ's teaching here. And so, the first point that I want us to see is that Christ and the Holy Spirit gives us all this background information, I believe, to highlight the seriousness of Christ's core teaching. It's meant to grab us by the collar 
And call us to think soberly and deeply about the core teaching that all uncleanness and defilement before God comes from the heart. And so, I want us to consider in verses 17 through 20 the depth of the depravity of the human heart. The depth of the depravity of the human heart. Now, we take Christ, he first has a negative statement and then a positive one, right? That nothing coming into our bodies can defile us, but it's what comes out of us that this truly defiles us. Now, this negative statement in verse 17, that you do, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, is to correct and teach that nothing can defile us by mere external use. Nothing can defile us by mere external use. And we have to be careful what we mean by this. I would say, I believe boldly, that Christ's teaching in the rest of the New Testament teaches that there's nothing that can enter into us without considering our hearts that can truly defile us in and of itself. Nothing can defile us in and of itself, but how it interacts with the human heart is where the defilement truly comes. And I think that this accords very sweetly with many very shocking texts in the New Testament. Please turn with me to a couple of these. Romans 14.14. Again, the teaching, the negative teaching of Christ, that nothing external coming into us can defile us, but it's only what comes out of us that defiles us. Romans 14, 14. Again, notice the clear statement by the Apostle. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So notice, notice the Apostle. As he's teaching about human li- or Christian liberty... He says that there's nothing unclean of itself, but in our conscience, if it is defiled, if we think it is a sin to engage in something, that is what makes it unclean. Turn over with me to the next book, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. Again, the very clear statement by the Apostle Paul. All things... Chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Notice the Apostle Paul's clear teaching that there's no substance, no thing out there that is unclean in and of itself, but it's how it interacts with the human heart is what makes it unclean, right? The, the, The Scripture that new wine... And prostitution, they bind the heart. They enslave the heart. This is what's being talked about here. That all things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be put under its control. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And so, in the Apostle's mind, there is no thing out there that by itself is unclean. Now, Paul's not teaching when he says all things are lawful, 
that we can do anything we want to do and it's lawful. Rather, he's talking about the things, the objects that exist in the world, that none of these objects in and of themselves are unclean before God. But it's only when they interact with the human heart that they can become unclean. And all these scriptures have a very sweet conformity to what is taught by our Savior here. Nothing can defile us from the outside. Rather, Jesus teaches all true moral defilement comes from the heart. Now, this is why we have to be careful about what comes into us from the outside, though. Right? Because my heart is so wicked and so depraved that the things of this world that might even be lawful and good, when they encounter my wicked heart, they can cause all sorts of evil to come out. And so we must take care. But I want us to consider the main point of Christ's teaching here is that true defilement comes from within. And that the unconverted heart, the natural state of man denies that it is the source of all evil. That is, Jesus gives this teaching here because there's fundamentally something within us that denies that it's my heart, my wickedness, that really causes all of the sin that comes into the world. Naturally, we look for somebody to blame, don't we? When we sin, when we do wrong, when we speak wrong, when we slander, we want somebody to blame. We have the same quality of Adam in the garden right after he sinned when he said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Right? That's what we want to do. But Jesus corrects that by saying, no, it's within your personal being why sin flows out of you. We blame the economy, politicians, spouses, climate change, unfairness, inequality, and gas prices or our brain chemistry, or God Himself, for the reason why we sin. But the unconverted heart rarely sees that the source of all the world's evil comes from His own wicked heart. But Jesus gives this here today out of grace and love for unconverted humanity to see that all true evil comes from the heart and it leaves all of us without excuse. No longer can I point to my neighbor or to the Democrats or whoever it might be and say, I sin because they make me do it. As we've been going through our ACBC conference, the thing that rings in my mind is how often I want to say, you make me so angry. No one can make me angry. Now, they can stir up what's in my own wicked heart. They can tempt me to anger, but it's there. It's in me. I have the root of all evil within my heart. Heart, all of our defilement before God, all of our uncleanness that makes us abhorrent to the divine nature and all of the sin that separates us from the life and blessings of God comes from the very core of who we are. The Bible paints the most dark picture of humanity that can be painted. We are not just sick people that are easily blown by the winds of this world, easily tempted into sin. We have everything that is needed to be wicked within us, and it flows from us very, very naturally. In fact, I believe the Bible very clearly teaches that without the restraining power of the Holy Spirit, even upon the unbelieving world, 
we would be far more wicked than we currently manifest ourselves to be. Romans 1 teaches that when the Spirit of God withdraws Himself, part of the judgment that we see is falling into more and more sin. Now in that passage, God doesn't make us more and more sinful. He withdraws His restraint from us and we show ourselves to be really, truly what we are. And what I want us to see first and foremost in this section is that the unconverted heart, those who are not saved by Jesus Christ, that they rarely see this and they refuse to see that wickedness springs from the eternal spring in His own heart. Now, I want us to notice how comprehensive Jesus is in His particular words. When He describes the depravity that we have, notice what He says. Evil thoughts, and then He gives the second table of the Ten Commandments in order without the Tenth Commandment. Murder, that's the Sixth Commandment. Adultery and sexual immorality, that's the Seventh. Theft is the Eighth. And false witness is the Ninth Commandment. And I really believe that what's going on here is that evil thoughts is the start of all of the true sin, the activity of sin that comes from our heart. To say that another way, that Jesus is putting the Tenth Commandment first and foremost in this section to show that we covet our way, we have evil thoughts on our way to committing all of the sin against our neighbors. All of our sin. Evil thoughts here is portrayed as the beginning of all of our sin. And I'd ask you today, the evil thoughts that you have within your own heart, do you see this as a spring of defilement and evil? Or do we buy the lie of our culture that it's just in my mind, it's just my thoughts, there's no concern about it? Jesus would say that this is the start of all real activity of sin. Now, in the face of this shocking depravity, I want us to notice that Jesus purposely leaves the unconverted with the terrifying truth that they would find righteousness outside of the law. Now think of this. If we don't know the Gospel of Jesus Christ, if we don't know the forgiveness given by God, and we hear the truth that Jesus Christ says here, that you are so wicked... That all the sin in this world proceeds from the core of who you are. You have no excuse. You can't point the finger. What are we left to do? We're either left to wait for judgment and be terrified, or we run to something else. We run to Christ who took our punishment for our sin. Brothers and sisters, this text tells me more than any other text in the Bible why we must be born again. I have to have a new heart because the heart that I currently have, it's incapable of even recognizing that all of my sin comes from within, from my own heart. I have to be changed to even see the kingdom of heaven and His righteousness. As Charles Spurgeon, I think, was asked one time, why do you always preach that you must be born again? He said, because you must be born again. Right? The unconverted are called to face the reality of their condition before God. This, is, this text must call us to that. And I, brothers and sisters here today, I cannot see within anybody's heart if you do not know Christ, you don't cling to the truth of the Gospel, you have to realize that before God, all of this is evident. Whether you want to own it, whether you want to believe Christ's words or not, all of your sin and depravity comes from your heart. Now, what about the converted? 
Now, the difference between the unconverted heart and the converted heart here is primarily that the converted heart sees the depravity of his or her heart and we hate it. Now, at our conversion, one of the chief things that God does through His Holy Spirit is He convinces us of the very reality that we're reading here today. Think about your conversion if you remember it. You recognized that you not only committed sin, but you were utterly sinful in your very nature down in your heart. That there's nothing you could do to reform your life. But God had to change you completely and fully and forgive all of your sins. In our conversion, we saw who we truly were and we ran to Jesus Christ as the only way of escape. But I don't think I have to convince any of you today that just because at our conversion we saw who we truly were, and we went to Christ, we can so easily forget this fact. Even as converted people, the indwelling corruption that we still have in our flesh, we tend to just point the finger at everybody else for our sin, don't we? I'm going to bring it up again. We blame our spouses. We blame our children. We blame our bosses. And I say this snarkily, but in some truth, most of all, we blame the Democrats, don't we? Can I get a little laugh from that? Okay. Uh, I was having a conversation, actually, the reason I put this in here, um, with a fellow pastor the other day. And uh, I said, we blame the Democrats for most things, don't we? And he said, no, brother, we blame the Democrats for everything. So, uh, we can do that, but it, it shows the wicked tendency in our heart to blame my sin, it's somebody else's problem. It's because they made me do it. Nobody made you do it. Nobody made you do it. You have everything in yourself to do it. You can be tempted, but all of that corruption comes from your heart. And isn't this the truth that is taught to us in James chapter 1? James chapter 1. As James teaches us about trial and temptation, notice he says in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and He tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. The reason you're angry with your children and your wife is because you have anger in your heart. And it's lured out by the devil's temptation. But it's there. It's there. And we must realize, brothers and sisters, that the indwelling corruption that we have in our flesh, it's still there and it's real. And we can believe the lies of the devil when he says it's somebody else's fault. Point the finger outside of yourself. Don't look within your own heart as the spring of own evil, but blame your neighbor. Now, I'm going to briefly have us turn to Romans chapter 7. And I say briefly because that's my intention, but it's hard for me to sum this text up in a very concise way, but I'm going to do my best. Romans chapter 7. I turn here today because I believe that the Apostle Paul gives us the great example of how we are supposed to behave in our Christian lives. Not pointing outside of ourselves, not blaming others for our own corruption, but seeing, first of all, notice in verse 13, did that which is good, he's talking about the law, the law is good, Paul says. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. 
It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. King James said that sin might become exceedingly sinful. If we have a true doctrine that Jesus Christ is talking about here, that sin proceeds from my heart, when I look at the law now, I don't blame my my brother or sister for causing me to sin. Rather, I see the law, I see it's good, I see the corruption in my heart, and the proper response is to say, sin is exceedingly sinful. The depth of sin is against a holy God and I have no excuse. But notice what else the Apostle says as a good example for us. He doesn't blame other people. I want us to see that. Rather, he recognizes the reality of the spirit and flesh struggle in our own flesh. Notice, I'm just going to read verse 21. We could read the whole of it, and I desire to do it, but for time's sake, we'll read verses 21 through 24. Notice, so I find it to be a law or a principle, is Paul's idea, a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making it captive to the sin that dwells in my members. We should see that there is an irreconcilable war in the Christian life. And lastly, we should say with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I know that within me all of my sin comes from my corrupt core. And we look for the day when Jesus Christ will totally and completely free me. Not just justify me from my sin, but free me completely from my sin in the resurrection from the dead. Now, as we consider this, and I, we've taken little time to really detail the corruption in our own heart, I think that what we should go to as Christians is the fact, the wonderful reality that Jesus Christ bore all of this defilement for us on the cross. That all of my sin, all of my anger towards my brother and sister, my spouse and my children was taken upon the cross of Jesus Christ. And He was punished for that sin. But not only that, Jesus was punished for all of my unsanctified and evil finger-pointing at everybody else. That it's their fault that I act this way. Jesus bore the reality even of that punishment. He bore the reality of that. When He was on the tree, He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so, as we consider Christ coming and saving our souls from all of our depravity and bondage, we should give great thanks to Him for freeing us from such a great evil that Jesus shows us so serious in our passage. But lastly today, I think if we truly grasp the ethic that Jesus is pointing us to, to own our sin, it should lead us to grace with one another. Turn with me lastly to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. It's one of my favorite passages. Notice the Apostle Paul. I'll I'll read from verse 1. 
but we're focusing on verses 2 through 7. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Notice, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why ought we to do that? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. When He poured out on us richly, Through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become the heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What an amazing thing it is that people like us that are this evil, and I would, no Hollywood movie that displays vampires and monsters and whatever it might be can display the depth of depravity that exists in every human heart. And Jesus Christ willingly came and bore that for us. So, I would ask you, brothers, I would encourage you, stop pointing the finger at everybody else and own your own sin. Believe that Jesus Christ took it on your behalf. And repent. Repent. Live a constant life of faith and repentance towards your Savior. So, in conclusion, the core teaching of Christ is that all sin does not come from without. No substance, no thing in the world has the ability to corrupt my heart, but it's what comes out of me. My evil thoughts, my desires are what corrupts me. And let us then not point our finger, not blame others, but blame ourselves. And like the Apostle Paul says, realize we're in the depth of an eternal struggle with our flesh and spirit and that Jesus Christ will save us from even the presence of sin on that final day. And so as we, as we turn our eyes to the Lord's table, we have, as we've often said, a visible sermon that is supposed to correlate in some way with the auditory sermon that we had just heard. That Jesus Christ, His body was broken, His blood was spilled. Why? Because we are covenant Breakers. We are lawbreakers before our God. He created us for good and life and blessing. And we have spent all of His gifts on our own sin. But instead of killing us as we deserve to be killed, Jesus Christ bore our punishment. His body was broken. His blood was shed. The only one who, whom it could be said, out of His heart naturally flowed righteousness and justice and peace and love. And there was no defilement. This holy Lamb of God died and took all of your defilement upon Himself willingly for your sins.